Welcome to the Digital Forester Podcast, where we talk to foresters about how they are using digital technologies in their day-to-day forestry work. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Digital Forester Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Cassie Rankin. He's the Western Canadian Account Executive with Planet. So for all those people who are interested in EO or Earth Observation, this is the man. He's got a PhD in Earth Observation from the University of Alberta. He's been around. Many of you already know him. He's done some awesome kick-ass work in the space. Cassie, how are you doing today? I'm doing really good. Yeah, excited to be here. Awesome, awesome. And where are we reaching you? Because nowadays, we really don't know. We're both rocking the virtual background for our YouTube viewers, for our listeners. You know, we got forestry backgrounds going on, but where are you calling in from? So I am in a pretty heavy, you know, forestry industry-centric place in British Columbia. I'm in Vernon, B.C., Nice, nice, nice. How's the skiing out in that neck of the woods? You guys, I heard, have a good base of snow for winter. Yeah, better than last year for sure. We've got uh, not super fresh snow, but uh, I think we've got some coming this weekend. I've got a new snowboard and I'm going out on Friday. Nice. I, I'm, I'm jealous. I haven't gone out for the season at all, but uh, our, our, uh, our mountains are your ski hills or garbage dumps, I believe. Like you have the real stuff out there. <laughs> But before we, we got going, our, our listeners are probably going to laugh because, um, you know, we were being on back to back to back calls and, and we we're just trying to get back in stride. So I think a lot of folks can appreciate in these days, it's kind of one Zoom or Teams call after uh, another. But I'm really excited to chat with you today, today because I've had a couple podcast interviews already and this earth observation thing, climate tech space and all this stuff, like it's really coming together. And, and I know you're going to represent and be able to bring us all the latest and greatest. But before we get into that, Tell me how you got into forestry. I think there's some really cool academic side things of the story and then industry, you know, school, obviously. But for our listeners, uh, why don't you introduce yourself and how you got into this space? Yeah, absolutely. Um, happy to do that. So, and this is good timing. I actually just came off a, a, a meeting that was very much like a future of forestry at Planet. So I'm all jazzed up around, you know, what's going on in forestry and remote sensing nice. and couldn't be better timing but yeah I don't I wouldn't consider myself a forester but I do work a lot in forestry I have a background uh, an academic background in forest ecology and forest successional studies so looking at how forests grow back over time Uh, but going way back actually my roots had me growing up in British Columbia I fell in love with forests uh, actually very close to where I'm living now in Vernon BC in the Shushwaps uh, my family's had property out there for forever. Basically, from the time I was six months old, I grew up out on the lake in the forests. Beautiful temperate forests up there. A lot of Douglas fir and, and hemlock. And it's um, one of the last remaining pockets of old growth, temperate, um, interior rainforest in British Columbia. And so that really had a strong influence on why I went into forest studies and ecology and biology and so really that that love and passion for forest came from a very young age and it's nice to be back in the, the place where it kind of all started but I did uh, my undergraduate at U of A in biology a lot of the the studies were evolutionary biology ecology and conservation biology and ended up going into a grad studies program in earth and atmospheric science actually looking at forest regeneration using all sorts of fun new gadgets like 
what's now known as IoT, so internet connected sensors, looking at forest health and ecology from an in situ on ground measurement standpoint, and trying to figure out how to measure that from space um, and how to correlate those variables on how forest recovery looks from a satellite image or a satellite sensor. And I actually spent the last uh, eight or nine years working more in industry in the startup world around forest inventories, LIDAR, all sorts of different uh, remote sensing technology. And so now I, I consider myself a naturalist, but with a, an expertise in forest remote sensing and monitoring. Yeah, for sure. I, I always love our guests on this podcast because everybody's just so humble in terms of, you know, what they've done. And again, I've seen your CV again, you know, uh, undergrad straight into a PhD and, you know, enough when we see that, uh, you know, that's often a signal, like, you know, bright minds, the next wave coming, lots of ideas. I'm, I'm just curious before we kind of dig in, are you where you thought you'd be? Because again, you and I both did grad school, right? And we kind of had a foot in industry, a bit of academia, obviously curious people, but uh, you and I both, I obviously joke, uh, at least for myself, I say, I went to the dark side. I didn't go into the ivory towers, but did you kind of always know you were going to kind of come out of the, the academic route or is it still something as you're going through it? Like, not sure. No, I would, I would definitely say I had no idea when I was in university, where it would take me. I just was so interested in anything related to science and technology. I was always torn actually between doing like a business program or like a science business program that the U of A has. And I, at the time um, in my undergrad thought I might go into marine biology. I did some fun work out at the Bamfield Marine Science Center field courses. And I thought for sure, oceanography and, and marine sciences. And that took a quick left turn when I, I took, I got a, an NSERC, so Canadian Federal Research Grant as a student to work for a lab called the Center for Earth Observation Science at the U of A to go and install weather stations in Brazil. And that took me down the path I'm on today, which was you know environmental instrumentation, forest ecology and monitoring. I, I mean, I just wanted to travel. I wanted to go to Brazil. <laughs> and sure, that turned into sure. a long track record of traveling all over the world, doing forestry instrumentation and radiometric monitoring and took me where I am today. Yeah, so thinking of our, our global listeners, U of A, University of Alberta in Edmonton. Uh, so in Brazil, does that mean you're fluent in Portuguese? Eu falo português. So <laughs> it's, yeah, it's Portuguese, English mix. The funny part of that is I actually learned Portuguese working in what would be considered like backwater redneck parts of Brazil. So I learned Portuguese from like the forest rangers. And these, these, these individuals don't necessarily have formal education backgrounds. So they speak a very rough form of Portuguese that I am told is almost like a hillbilly version. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So for our Brazilian listeners, uh, hopefully what uh, Cassidy said makes sense and uh, or you're on the ground howling and, and laughter and, and that's cool too. So for our listeners, like I'm curious to learn as well, you know, some buzzwords like neon and other things, you know, scaling up and maybe tell our listeners more about that PhD research because often, uh, you know, we kind of shrug it off, but it was a large part of your life. Like 
six years research, yeah. obviously travel. But for our listeners who, before we dive into, you know, the commercial forestry side of things, or maybe the applications, more on the science side, maybe kind of educate uh, our listeners and, and myself, truthfully, what was happening in that research, what, what you're really trying to, to, to answer in terms of some of your science questions. Yeah, it's a dangerous question because I could probably talk for way too long on that. But <laughs> uh, in short, we were really trying to understand how essential climate variables, which are, um, or ECVs for short, which are becoming more and more kind of a popular reference for environmental, social governance industry, how these variables that are biophysical variables, so like tree volumes and biomass and things like the humidity levels in a forest or the soil organic content. All of this is related um, to the temperature and moisture dynamics in a forest. And when fields or when forests in the tropics, which is where I started doing my PhD research, which led to more temperate forestry research, when they get cleared for agriculture, there's a, there's a lot of unknowns in what happens as they grow back over time and how do the services and environmental value provided by forest return over time. So that's things like the timber itself, which is easy to think of, you know, trees and timber, but also, you know, water storage and carbon storage and biodiversity, fruits and nuts, uh, all of the raw materials that a lot of, uh, you know, First Nations and Indigenous peoples rely on that live in these forest uh, adjacent communities. And, and, and really in a 10, 20, 30, 40 year cycle, when agricultural fields are left to fallow and, and essentially recover some of that organic soil materials. There's not a lot of knowledge on, you know, the trees grow back, but do the birds come back? Do the insects come back? Do we get the fruit produ producing trees? Uh, or is it, just, um, is it just kind of scrubland that doesn't have a lot of social uh, or environmental value? And so we wanted to be able to measure that at scale using satellites. So at the time it was MODIS, the moderate uh, resolution imaging spectra radiometer system on NASA's Aqua and Terra satellites. They're very uh, coarse spatial resolution by today's standards. So 250 meter pixels, one, you know, 500 meter and one kilometer pixels, measuring attributes like leaf area and absorbed photosynthetic radiation, because those are variables that correlate very nicely with how much carbon is being pulled into the forest and stored in the wood and the soil and the stems. And there was not an easy way to, to, to tell how accurate that was. So my job was to go in and, and put as many sensors, light sensors, photosynthetic radiation sensors, soil moisture sensors, temperature, wind, all of the variables that relate to the redevelopment of environmental services that forests provide and validate how accurately the satellites measure that and see if we could estimate that at a larger landscape level across the tropics. And that eventually turned into research uh, collaborations with a number of global institutions looking at very similar things in very um, different um, landscapes around the world. So from Northern Alberta, looking at those uh, Aspen forests and how those recover over time from forestry activities, all the way down to the eucalyptus forests in Australia, where we work with their, their um, terrestrial ecological monitoring network of carbon flux towers to see how eucalyptus forests were handling the extreme drought of climate change. And it really turned into a much more global project around forest 
health and regeneration than was originally intended, but it was um, it was an exciting team and, and research group to be part of. Yeah, very cool. And a lot of that output, I, I believe, uh, you know, adopted by, you mentioned Australia, CSIRO, and, you know, German space, DLR and stuff. So, so that's cool to see the, the science go out there and, and be applied. So we're going to dive into some some topics, maybe. Uh, so every Forester, uh, well, maybe I should say every Forester loves drones, but every Forester has either seen one or used one, or, or really it's part of the toolkit, I, I would argue. Uh, Sky Maddox, you're a co-founder, CTO there, I, I believe. Uh, tell me more about that. How was that just a progression from, you know, the, the academic research, sensors, drones, and different scales? How did that come to be? And, 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 and what, what, what was the key things you were doing there in that company? Yeah, I would say it was an evolution of the research I was doing, which was really trying to understand how spectral signals uh, can, can relate to those biophysical attributes of vegetation. And that's function and structure of vegetation. And what was happening in the early 2010s was drone technology was coming from like transitioning from a hobby, you know, kind of a DIY build your own system into the first commercially available drones, you know, from DJI uh, with their original phantoms and putting cameras built onto them. So I think it was 2012 when we got our hands on kind of a, a novice ready unmanned aerial vehicle system. And we, we tried to figure out how do we bridge the gap between those point measurements we're making in the forest. So if you think of inventory for forestry today, you know, you've got your plots and you're trying to scale that up to LIDAR based measurements, et cetera. We were doing that in forestry as well from a research and, you know, landscape, ecophysiology, monitoring dynamics, taking point measurements and scaling them up to very large pixels from satellites. And there's that huge scaling gap from a 200 some meter pixel to maybe a one hectare footprint um, sensor measurement of carbon flux. The drones came in right at a time that it was, it was becoming apparent that, wow, we could actually collect very, very high resolution imagery over our study sites and start to do things like individual tree counts and crown measurements and understand how much understory vegetation was there uh, from, from very near surface remote sensing, so drones, and then scaling the information in those high resolution pixels out to the time series measurements we're making on the ground, and then up to the time series information from satellites. And so I just fell in love with drones. I mean, if anyone who has flown a drone for the first time can remember the feeling of grabbing that controller and just you know having the thing on your fingertips, almost like a, almost like a real life video game. Um, they're yeah, very sure. fun to fly. So yeah, yep. <laughs> slightly addictive. <laughs> they are addictive, and I I found all the ways to use them, the right way and the wrong way. Um, sure. But I, I ended up co-founding Skymatics uh, to learn how to use drones essentially for industrial applications, commercial applications, forestry, agriculture, mining, you name it, all the things they're used for today. We were one of the first companies in Canada to uh, get a commercial permit to actually operate these things. And it was a cool um, opportunity to apply all my academic knowledge on spectral anal analysis and make some money uh, solving industry problems. Yeah, absolutely. The best, the best of all worlds there. So thinking of some of our listeners who 
who may not fully be into that drone space or are thinking about going um, there. And again, I know if you kind of moved on from that, that space, um, but are there any pro tips you would give our listeners? You know, does it really matter what you buy? Is it still going to a Best Buy or a store and what's consumer available is good, good enough? Or is there some things you kind of picked up from that experience that you'd say, you know, if I look back to a younger Cassidy, I would, I would tell him, it's like, you know, watch out for this. Are, are there any pro tips you'd share with uh, our listeners? I would say, I mean, the commercial or sorry, consumer off the shelf drones. Those are the, you know, 500 to $1,500 Best Buy drones can do a lot more than you think. And that's kind of where our business focus was, was taking the affordable stuff, uh, the stuff that doesn't cost you $20,000, $50,000 to put in the air. And then, you know, you're crossing your fingers that it doesn't crash. Uh, what kind of value can you get out of that? So just a simple, true color, digital photograph. What kind of information can you extract? Is it object counting? You know, there's a lot of stuff you can do with that. You don't have to necessarily start with the big rigs. And I think that's the cool thing about drones is it democratizes the remote sensing process. More and more people are understanding what can be done with aerial imagery, what can't be done, what new sensors do we need to measure that next best thing that we want to measure. And so, you know, start small, build up from there and don't don't jump into the deep end on the on the tech stuff just focus on what problems can you solve today um lowest cost investment and and build up from there once you find a niche that you can do differently stick with it yeah for sure that's great advice just get going or or nike slogan just do it try experiment and yeah fail fast, uh, common terms there. So I also know um, you, you work for Kessler Systems and, and Bruce is going to be on uh, the show in a couple of weeks, but maybe talk about what you did there uh, because this is going to bring in uh, LIDAR again. It's the hot, still the hot word, uh, force inventory, you know, area-based predictions, individual tree. And again, you're coming from an EO, like trained as an earth observation scientist. So I'm curious to see when you came into that space, start looking at who's who in the zoo and what they're doing. Did it match with your scientific training and your, your industry experience? Or was there something where you kind of said like, oh my God, it's like, why are they doing it this way? It's like, I'm going to flip this on the head and add, add value there. What, what can you share on that front in terms of that career journey? Yeah, good question. And there's definitely a few kind of hot topic areas in how forest inventories are done and the technology that's applied that conflicted with my view of like, what, what should we be doing? What, you know, here's the art of the possible in the R&D world. Where's the commercial value? What's the low hanging fruit? How can we incrementally increase the efficiency or the, the reliability of the information coming out of the types of sensors we're putting on drones and airplanes? And there's some specific examples I could think of that, that I could bring up that I thought, okay, why are they doing it like that? And then I dig into, okay, well, it's cheaper, but if the information is not giving you what you need, then is it worth, you know, spending less on that? And that's really the struggle when it comes to the R&D side of bringing new technology to industry is, first of all, you solve the technical problem. And maybe it's like, how do we analyze a LiDAR point cloud in a totally different way? Maybe it's using neural networks to extract the types of indices that we would normally traditionally calculate in a much more structured, hard-coded way. Um, and, and trying to understand what are the barriers to adoption in industry? So who's poo-pooing this idea and why? And try to 
tease that apart? Is it just because they have a method that works and don't mess with a good thing? Is it the fear of the unknown of, we can't trace back a machine learning algorithms process. So how could we ever convince regulators that this is a reliable approach? The black box. <laughs> the black, the, yeah, the infamous black box. Yep. And I learned where to pick my battles <laughs> and where to say, uh, maybe you could do it this way. And, and this is why, and try not to make people upset because forestry has a very deep rooted, um, you know, human resource background. You know, there's, there's folks that have just been at it their entire careers, aerial photography works, let's not mess with a good thing. Um, and then there's the shakers and the movers that really want to see what the new latest and greatest stuff can do. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly, uh, foresters are sometimes set in their ways, you know, also early adopters of some geospatial technology early on. Um, you know, they're back at it uh, there, but sometimes it's, uh, yeah, a challenge. Thinking of that, um, you're at Planet now. And then so, you know, we've kind of gone through a bit of your background and I suspect our listeners are going like, wow, you know, there's lots of buzzwords that have gone through and this this guy knows, knows him, he's using them liberally. You're at Planet now, and obviously in forestry, a lot of forestry companies are using Planet technology. And and so I'm, and maybe for our listeners who don't know who Planet is, can you maybe pause and introduce uh, who Planet is, where what their history is, their their vision, their raison d'être, or whatever that 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 thing is, and then um, maybe talk about how you ended up there, because I'm even curious to know uh, how that came to be uh, in your new role as an account executive. Yeah, so Planet's a unique company in the sense that they've they've really pioneered the use of a CubeSat. You know, they were the, the first ones to say, why do satellites have to be so big and expensive and risky? They coined the phrase agile aerospace, taking the philosophy from you know Silicon Valley, iterate quickly, fail fast, and, and build on those failures. And they applied it to the concept of Earth observation. Now there actually is a good podcast um, how I how I built this that I you know better explains the origins of Planet than I can. That's an interview with our our CEO and, and co-founders, and it really gets into a lot of interesting detail on where the idea came from. But it's basically a small group of you know satellite uh, scientists, you know some from NASA, some from JPL, etc., that tried to break the mold on how we got into orbit and measured the Earth. And so Planet is a, really a, an aerospace company that is transforming into a data provider. And what we have is the world's largest constellation of Earth observation satellites. You know, I think, I think we've launched over 400 satellites. We've got our kind of core constellation planet scope that images the Earth every day. So we've got a, a photograph of every place on the land surface updated amazing. Almost, almost daily. And that enables us to be able to monitor change. And the key kind of concept and philosophy behind Planet is you can't fix what you can't see. And, and so we've, we've taken this approach to be able to allow anybody and everybody that has interest in monitoring and managing Earth's resources and assets and natural capital and to be able to access that information more readily through our, our constellations. Yeah, so very, very, very cool. So thinking of, um, 
uh, again, often on this show, I love to to role play as the the forester who's kind of uh, learning, and in most cases, I am learning new things. But as a forester, it's like you know, I hear about Cassie other options, you know, like the Sentinels, the Landsats, and um, but for what I heard from what you just said, it's like your 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 temporal resolution is is way higher. Um, but as a forester, it's like give me the pitch like what uh because again i will talk about what you do now and then i also know there's other things directions you're going and we'll get we'll get there but what's the pitch to the everyday forester now is it really about knowing what's happening in your forest something as simple as that monitoring you know cup block progress or is it more about vitality or health and you know this is where we go into that hyper special route this is more on the multi-spec i guess but what's the pitch you, you find uh, yourself giving most days to a forester who's just learning more about planning? Well, you've asked the right guy. I'm the, I'm the greasy salesman now. <laughs> but, you know, the account executive role really is a sales heavy focus, which is a big shift for me coming from remote sensing analytics and product development. And um, I, I really, I wanted to take a sales role to start to take new technologies that are ready for industry instead of developing those solutions and trying to see them grow into industry. It's like, we've got something that's ready to go. It works, here's the proof points. It's a new technology, but this is why I think you're ready for it and really start to see industry change uh, faster. So that, that's why I went into sales is I wanna get the stuff that I find really exciting, which is this you know high temporal resolution earth observation imagery into the hands of the folks that are using it every day. You know, If we can get people driving to site in and less less often to reduce their their risk and operations we want to do that you know if we can help them keep an eye on their inventories without needing to contract out expensive aerial imagery and update their inventory uh, within season you know in a cost effective way we want to do that so i uh i've seen a huge adoption in in western canada in the forestry industry of our, of our satellite imagery. To be honest, the majority of it is actually not our daily imagery. It's our high resolution 50 centimeter sky sat imagery. And the, the spot that it's found its way into forestry is to replace or supplement a lot of the aerial surveys okay. where a company may invest a huge amount of money to do their, if it's not annual, maybe it's every two or three years, aerial survey to get their 10 to 30 centimeter imagery for inventory purposes or for operational reasons and using something like a 50 centimeter satellite image which is on demand you literally just press a button you have control to go take that picture when and where you want it to update the stuff that is already out of date after their aerial survey so an example of a company that just purchased uh, some skysat imagery had invested in a big lidar survey this this spring in british columbia with our record-breaking fire season, I think about 30% of their forestry management area burnt and their, their LIDAR information is already out of date in terms of trying yeah. to build an area-based analysis. Yeah. So they need to supplement and update some of the aerial imagery and understand what areas they may not be able to use that LIDAR point cloud anymore in their analytics. And they're not gonna get a contractor with an airplane out there uh, in a timely manner, especially at the very end of the season, or when there's a lot of smoke that prevents you from flying. So the SkySat constellation is, is basically on demand. You just press a button at a point on a map and you task the satellite to go collect imagery over that spot. 
and a lot of forestry companies are getting a lot of value out of the fact that it's readily available, very cost effective, and can keep their their monitoring efforts up to date. Yeah. So for our listeners, when you say push the button, you know, task it to to take the the photo, is it really that easy? You know, log on, click the button, or is it really? Oh, I got to call Cassidy. This is his way of getting me to to give him a call and chat through. You know, so is you, it that easy? It is that easy once you're set up on a subscription service. So it's a it's a subscription service, and yes, you do have to reach out to me if you don't have that set up. Uh, if you're in Western Canada or any anyone on the planet, if you're outside of this territory, can help you on the sales front. But once you've set up, you know, a, a service agreement, it is very much designed to put the the control back to you. So traditionally for satellite tasking, you have to contact the company and say, I've got this area of interest. I want a, you know, an image of this specification. Can you provide that or can you collect it for me? It can take quite a long time for that to turn around. It could be weeks before successful collection because these sub-meter resolution satellites, there's not a lot of them. Um, our, our competitors out there may have you know, less than half a dozen. Uh, we've got 21 of these sky sets that we're adding to the constellation. I think we we launch new satellites on average every three or four months. And Impressive. so we've, we've got capacity to actually have that image collected when you pick a point on the map on the user dashboard with, within a few days. It's technically possible to have same day collection if the weather and timing is right. Next day or the day after is kind of the average turnaround we see in most forestry cases. And it's a good size image. It's a you know, that minimum capture is five by five kilometers. So, you know, 25 square kilometer scene, much bigger footprint than, a, than an aerial photograph. And a lot of folks like the ability to just get it when, it, when they need it on their schedule. Yeah, absolutely. And, and hey, man, it's like, there's no, there's no shame in sales roles as I've discovered things. I find it, uh, you know, one of the most fascinating careers in all honesty. It's like, I love it. It's like, you know, we've got the used car salesman stereotypes, but like sales <laughs> profession is like awesome. It's like hats off you and, and kudos to you for embracing and going down that path. So we, we, so for our listeners, we heard of Planet Scope, you know, we've heard SkySat, but what else is in the pipe for Planet? And, and uh, is, is there anything else you can share in terms of some other use cases that uh, you're seeing uh, foresters adopt regularly, or maybe kind of at that edge where you're, you're trying to guide them into that direction because you know what the future could be and uh, change takes time, but you're, you're kind of nurturing them there. What else can you share about uh, Planet's mission and, and vision and, and, and for, for the forestry space? Yeah, Planet's gonna keep on building satellites and putting up the next generation of sensors on a regular basis. We launched 44 new Super Doves last, uh, no, the week before last to add to our constellation there of about 200 strong in that planet scope constellation. And those are eight spectral bands. So the nice thing about, um, you know, being able to update the sensors in that constellation every few months is we can get more and more spectral bands added to that constellation. So I think we've got, so that includes like a, a red edge band, which is really helpful for like pest detection and like general stress indicators in, in tree canopies. There's you know additional bands in the yellow and coastal blue. So it allows for much more nuanced land cover classification and things like water stress and moisture stress monitoring, pest infestations, earlier detection of, of diseases. And 
really that's kind of something that I'm looking forward to getting into the hands of foresters who may be looking to detect problems earlier than they have been able to. Um, and that's at about a three meter resolution pixel. So it's fine enough to not necessarily see an individual tree, but you're gonna get uh, you know, a stand with good, good level of confidence and information. So we're always evolving our spectral capabilities on that near daily monitoring kind of medium resolution solution. And on the horizon, uh, the stuff that I am allowed to talk about is the Pelican constellation. So we're building uh, the next generation SkySat essentially. SkySats are submeter imaging for spectral bands. And that's gonna, don't quote me on this, I believe we're gonna be essentially doubling the resolution of SkySat. So really getting into that sub 50 wow. centimeter domain where aerial imagery really shines uh, and helping uh, a lot of folks that need to see individual trees or, or higher spatial resolution. And we're, we're working towards having greater temporal coverage with that constellation. And I think there's a few other interesting developments. I may not be able to speak more in depth other than the fact that we've got um, a joint project with the JPL, Arizona State University and a few other groups. That's called yeah. Carbon Mapper. That's a hyperspectral 400 spectral band wow. system that will be also using that same Pelican bus. So the satellite bus um, to do hyperspectral monitoring of, you know, greenhouse gas emissions and very cool. The applications are go a lot beyond that, but that's just, you know, some of the key areas. Yeah, well, th this is where I feel old because back in my day, right, it's Landsat and, you know, like ABH, RR, you know, and, and it was like multispectral, superspectral and hyperspectral. I don't even know what jargons yeah. used nowadays in the, the EO space, but yeah, same, so definitely same one. same one still going. All right. So maybe I'm not that much of a dinosaur quite yet. Um, so, so definitely cool to see that direction. And, and, you know, when you say that, you know, breaching, you know, that, that, that 50 centimeter range. So what, what are you thinking? Um, you know, you and others will kill off aerial mapping at some point in time will negate the need for planes and large format cameras. What, what are your thoughts on that? Or do you think it's just a function of depends on what you're trying to do? I, I think very much it's going to be a little column A and a little column B. So right. we are seeing already replacement of some parts of aerial surveys for forestry, where maybe you're doing the entire uh, land holding or woodlot uh, every couple of years with aerial imagery. Now it might just be some smaller areas of, of that land base with aerial and then the rest of it more frequently with satellite. The one advantage aerial still has is that stereo component. So getting those, you know, soft copy models and there's regulatory requirements for specific resolutions and stereo imagery inventories. So that's, that's really where aerial imagery is gonna, is gonna shine for at least you know, five years to come or more. We are doing stereo satellite work, but you don't get the precision and you don't get that, that same level of accuracy. We are able to get things like stand height and canopy height from stereo satellites but you know, specific vegetation subtypes is a little bit more challenging. So I think it's very much a, a supplementary workflow, similar to how people are using drones where they used to only be able to use aerial imagery. It's kind of like right. that, that, that niche 
scaling. So very small area, medium versus large is when you use the different imaging tools. Yeah, for sure. No, that's a great comment. And, and you know, just you answering it that way, right? It, it signals, you know, this is one of those good account executives who are going to educate and not immediately say, oh, or planet, we're going to kill everybody, all of their options. It's like, we're going to, Cassie is going to educate you on what makes sense. You know, same with the drones, right? I think around 500 hectares, that sweet spot that once you go above, it kind of don't make sense any anymore. So definitely, thanks for sharing that view. I'm just curious when you guys, you said you, you guys pushed uh, 40 of these doves up and um, I'm just curious, like internally at the company, when that day is coming, I assume there's some nerves. Um, like what's it like in the company when you're hitting that milestone? Like uh, I'm sure there's a celebration after they get up successfully, but, but until you get to that point, what's it like in the organization? Is it kind of pins and needles? I'm just curious. A little bit. And I would say less pins and needles for the newbies like myself. So I'm just six months into the company. Uh, this was my, so two weeks ago, it was my first launch. I, our, I took part of, uh, we do a traditional pancake breakfast. So they used to, there's a headquarters in San Francisco. They usually do that in person, but with the pandemic that's been pushed remote. So they actually sent all of us our own pancake kits. Nice. You know, nice. Um, we got aprons, et cetera. Uh, you know, it's traditional to do that, but then everybody kind of huddles and watches the launch nervously because we have lost payloads in the past. We've had, uh, I, I can't remember, it was earlier in the days, but lost a pretty significant number of, of satellites. Luckily, you spread that risk out across a number of launches, and we've had quite a few launches more successful than not. But in watching the launch two weeks ago, we've got the the CEO, Will Marshall, on the screen, and you could see the nerves. You could see the look on his face. He's like, is this going to make it? You know, these are our latest and greatest technology going up on a, on a you know, action-packed rocket. <laughs> yeah. So the, the nerves are there and the excitement is there. And then once they get into orbit and everything starts to connect and we start to get the signals back and we are getting health checks, everybody can breathe a sigh of relief. And then we just get excited about, you know, how much... Um, new and emerging uh, information we're going to get from those new sensors yeah for sure absolutely I, I was I was just super curious about what it was like in there so so looking at looking at our time I'm, I'm going to kind of take us more into that generalist space we talked about planet and what it does super cool as I said I know like like so many forcey companies that are using planet technology and and you shared some new things that are coming so we'll, we'll be on the lookout for for that but thinking about you know one three ten year time frames um our listeners know i always ask this um what gets you excited like are there things that you're, you're kind of seeing coming that you're like holy cow it's like you know this thing is just going to be a game changer in that one three year time or maybe 10 years but are there certain technologies that you'd want to share with our digital foresters in terms of hey keep your head up just watch it it's it, it might be far in the horizon it might be in the short term what are your thoughts on that so i'm a remote sensing geek and an environmental monitoring and ecological science geek so the thing that i get really excited about is seeing people use time series information to its fullest potential. Because you think of a satellite image traditionally or aerial imagery, you're getting a snapshot in time. And we've already seen with area-based inventories, LIDAR inventories, adding spectral information to those analytics improves things like species classification and you know, early detection of problems. And you can you know, even track like regrowth and regeneration 
but really, you know, one snapshot a year, one snapshot every other year at very high resolution helps. But near daily information, and we're talking about not just planets constellation, but some of the work we're doing to fuse the information from our sensors with all of the other satellites out there. So that's synthetic aperture radar for cloud proof imaging. It's the Sentinel-2 information. So, you know, talking about eight or more spectral bands. It's a series of, of advances in the space and Earth observation ecosystem where we're able to merge and fuse all that data into a very clean signal on the temporal dynamics of forests and vegetation. And I think we're gonna to continue to see this trend of fusion and normalization and what we call harmonization between all of these sensors to get a really, really accurate gauge on what's going on on the ground with less and less need for ground validation and, and training data on the ground. Uh, just the way it seems to be going is everyone in this forestry, carbon market, biomass world is still hinging on ground validation data. Right. You, know, you, gotta, you gotta train your model. It's gotta be forest type specific. It's gotta be regionally specific. You gotta follow standards. That's gonna be the way it goes for years and years until we get to a point where we can trust the models because we know that the source data, the LIDAR and the satellite sensor information is normalized and standardized in a way that it can work across all the different forest types trained on these robust models that have come from multi-source integrations and standardizations so that you will need less ground data to validate things. You'll basically say, I trust this information until something doesn't look right for sure, let's go investigate that on the ground. But I'm excited to see the future of very high temporal coverage, near daily detection of changes, uh, early detection of fires and, and fire risk. And I think that um, this is something that the remote sensing earth observation world has talked about since the dawn of remote sensing science. Absolutely. That is finally coming to fruition through these fusion methodologies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, when I even think back to my grad days, uh, th those words were at play, right? And it's kind of funny that, you know, you coming from the science side, like, is that the magic rule? Like, it takes 20 years for that science to commercialize and those ideas and the ivory towers to really kind of take shape and, and form and then bring the people along for that change management journey. I don't know, I'm just finding a lot as I look back at my career, a lot of things, you know, that the us in our ivory towers thought about is it, it seems to fit on that 20, 20 year after not told you so as opposed to as you know, it, it, it's harder to affect change and introduce a, uh, introduce new technologies to any sector, but uh, forestry can be even more challenging. So thinking further out 10 years out, give me that, uh, you know, I'm going to throw a dart with zero precision and accuracy, it's going to go somewhere. What's the world look like 10 years out for for you? Yeah, outside of the forestry piece alone, um, that's a tough question to answer. I, I don't see myself leaving this, this space industry. I really think it's an exciting space to be, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> I, I think the number of, of changes we're seeing in the technology capabilities, so exponential growth in the reduction of cost of getting hardware into orbit, and the types of things that we can measure. Uh, I can see myself staying in this, this new space age uh, with a focus on forests because forests is, is really my passion. 
And there's a lot of really cool things that can be done that I would like to see done with remote sensing technologies that help us better manage forests on a whole. So not just from a timber perspective, but also from, as I talked earlier about the ecosystem service landscape and the natural capital of what forests offer uh, humans and, and, and wildlife in general. So I'm excited about what's to come once we kind of figure out where this new technology really fits into the marketplace and what solutions have long-term value for helping us sustainably manage forests and making sure that the folks that are working on the ground and, and managing the timber, you know, that the, the forestry companies are in sync with, with public interests on longevity of, of forestry. Canada's got an amazing track record for the forestry science, um, you know, academic world and, and industry collaboration and making sure that we've got, you know, 50, 100, 150 year plans for our forest mm -hmm. management. And I'd like to see that technology spread, you know, more to, to nations that are just getting a good handle on, on correcting maybe some of the deforestation practices and, and making it more of a sustainable um, operation with their forests. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then you mentioned the words natural capital and ecosystem services. I'm just curious with like, like this influx of like climate tech um, funding from the climate tech, like it's almost like, oh, well, I don't know, Do, would you agree it's exciting times because there's almost a, a different set of players coming from the VC world that's driving that EO space and maybe pushing things, accelerating things maybe beyond what us traditionally trained uh, EO scientists would think. Do you think there's that's in the going in the right direction? And did that surprise you to see that 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 flood of climate tech uh, investment coming in? I, I was a little surprised at the, the level of involvement that kind of emerged throughout the pandemic. I think you know if you pay attention to the larger goals and initiatives of you know global economic giants there's there's been this desire to really accelerate clean technology there's been a, a major push in funding green tech developments so the timing uh, obviously you know happened around the same time as the pandemic not by coincidence people looked inwards for a time and thought you know what kind of shifts can we make and should we make and it just seemed like everything kind of came together to, to make that happen and I think we're just gonna see with this natural capital carbon market uh, excitement, the traditional you know, hype curve that you see with new products and services come out and new technologies yep. where it's like, we can do everything. No, we can't. <laughs> and you actually figure out where the value piece is and, and carry that forward. So in the longer term, 10 years out, we're gonna see a lot of the foundations for forest management practices evolving over these next few years with the adoption of, of new technologies that can more remotely see all of the forest at once instead of just the areas that were actively on the ground managing and that'll that'll be a long-lasting effect yeah absolutely crossing the chasm is uh harder than most people think uh when we think about you know new technology and innovation Final question from, from my side, I guess, is if you were to look back to a younger Cassidy, you know, uh, pre-Dr. Cassidy Rankin, is there a piece of advice you'd, you'd give yourself knowing what you know today and the, the journey? Uh, is there something you'd share with a younger, younger self? 
I would probably tell myself not to worry about the little things that as a researcher in my younger days, or even someone just very curious about science, is everything is you're trained to look at the details, especially when you're doing like experiments. It's like, notice the little things, track those because they may be significant. And then when you come out of that research world and academic world and get into industry, you learn it's it, the little things are not as important when it comes to hiccups on the road. That's the same concept that we've been kind of coming back to is fail often and fail fast and recover and learn from it is is don't dwell on the little things that don't work just just focus on what is working and, and pay attention to that yeah I and mean, that's great advice and even for our digital foresters as as you look at adopting some new technologies and your digital transformations that that advice from cassidy applies even there like take that step forward and, and course correct as you go so I suspect some of our listeners uh, are going to, you know, as we wind down, some of our listeners are probably thinking, hey, like, I want to learn more. I want to discover more and whatnot. What's the best way for folks to get a hold of you? I know you're very active in social and that I say that in, a, in an awesome way. You're always sharing your thoughts and sharing other people's uh, work. And that's awesome. We need folks like you to keep challenging the, the well, promoting the discussion in different areas and then challenging things that may not be quite accurate uh, per se. Uh, but how do folks reach you? Uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, email, what's the best way? I'd, I'd say LinkedIn's probably the most direct way to find me and, and get a hold of me. Uh, I, I will answer my emails uh, as well, probably not as quickly, uh, but that's just my name. It's Cassidy.Rankin at Gmail. And uh, I'm always open to the conversations around new technologies, forestry specific. I could talk your ear off probably, <laughs> no thanks. And uh, I'd love to connect with anyone that wants to talk more about, you know, practices in, in forest management and specifically remote sensing tech. Cool. Well, there you have it. Digital Forester listeners, if you want to reach out to Cassidy, LinkedIn, easiest way, ping him, Cassidy Rankin, or at his email address. So, hey, man, thanks so much for joining. I know, as I said, we started this podcast where we're just back to back, back. If you're like me, it's like another back to back. So, hey, if I can give you back a few minutes between the next one, that's probably beneficial. But I really appreciate your time sharing your ideas. This is one I really wanted to, one, not only catch up because it's been a, a few years since we actually uh, spoke and you've obviously moved, uh, done lots of cool things. I've, I've watched uh, at afar. Uh, so definitely appreciate you carving out the time. Uh, final thoughts to you, Cassidy. I thank you for having me on here. I love I love what you're doing with this podcast. I've listened to the others and there's some really incredible people that you've had attend this this podcast and, and share their thoughts on the industry. I'd encourage people to listen to those as well. And, uh, you know, Kevin, you've complimented me a whole bunch on this talk, but I, I'd say you're, you're more modest than you need to be. You've got an impressive track record in, in bringing the industry forward into adopting things like LIDAR and, and more advanced geospatial technology. So it's a pleasure to chat with you as always. And thanks again. For sure. Absolutely. All right. Well, take care and be safe. And I hope to see you on the circuit in person one of these days. That's the plan. All right, man. Okay. Take care.